0: You have to maintain that data. Garbage in, garbage out, essentially. So if you maintain that data and don't forget about it, it's not a sudden forget it thing. Just because you put an item in a system doesn't mean you can't. You, have to, you don't need to go back into the item and update what's the what, what is my safety stock for this item now? What is my lead time for this item now? What are my reorder points, my reorder quantities, right? What are these different things? You have this a continuous loop, like you mentioned. It has to be a process of continuous feedback.
1: Here is your host, Sam Gupta.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at Independent ERP and Digital Transformation Consulting firm Elevate IQ. What comes to mind when you think of engineering change control? Well, if you're a small shop with a few changes per month or relatively straightforward products, then you might not see as many change orders. If you are a highly engineered shop or sell custom products, you might receive change orders even after shipping your products. Heavy on change orders? Then you must need a formalized engineering change control process. Otherwise you might struggle a lot. So what are the best practices of engineering change control? In today's episode, we invited a panel of cross-functional experts for a live interview on LinkedIn who brings significant expertise to discuss inventory replenishment best practices. We discussed the nuances of simpler replenishment strategies such as min-maxes to more advanced such as Kanban, win and MRP-centric replenishment strategies. Finally, we discussed the advancements in the inventory replenishment strategies such as ddmrp and how that differs from other traditional methods of inventory replenishment with that let's get to the conversation hello everyone welcome to today's show and if you're joining for the first time this is part of our digital transformation series for which we meet every thursday at 5:30 pm eastern Today, we have a very interesting topic. It's called repanishment strategies. There are going to be so many different names there for that. So we are going to have a lot of fun discussing that. Before we do that, we are going to start with everybody's intros. I am going to start with my intro. If you don't know me, I am your host, Sam Gupta, principal at Elevate IQ. Elevate IQ is the independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm. On that note, I am going to move to Chris for his intro. Thanks, Sam.
3: Chris Giardini, uh, owner and CEO of Turnkey Technologies. Uh, we're a 28-year Microsoft Dynamics implementation partner. Again, lots of involvement with distribution manufacturing companies, a lot of different strategies. we discussing some of them.
2: Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Chris, uh, for the intro. Can I move to you next for your intro?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Nirav Shah, CEO founder of Answer CRP, implement Acumatica. Um, you know, it's planning and replenishment systems is near and dear to my heart. You know, a lot of implementations that we do revolve around proper planning, proper demand forecasting, proper supply planning. So. A lot to talk about today and uh, love to share
2: that. All right, amazing, thank you so much for being here. And Abu, can I move to you next for your intro?
4: So, uh, my name is
5: Abu Asif, I'm the founder here at penny We are a CHX3 partner, uh, implementing. MRP demand planning in a wide variety of industries, from food and beverage to distribution to just general industrial manufacturing. Glad to be here and excited to talk about it.
2: Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Abu. Mark, can I ask you to introduce yourself next?
4: Yes, of course. Good afternoon. i Mark Lilly, President and CEO of LillyWorks. Um, here at LillyWorks, we have a long history with uh, traditional MRP and traditional scheduling. And uh, we've come up with and also use uh, different methodologies to replace some of those. So I'm very excited to be on to talk about how those might apply to inventory replenishment. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Mark. And if
2: you are in the audience and joining for the first time, make sure you guys post your questions and comments. We typically try to cover them during the show. If we run out of time, we'll make sure that you receive your answers. On that note, Chris, I am going to start with the first question. And in my mind... When I look at different implementations, everybody's going to say, and, you know, obviously, we have the 70, 60 percent, whatever failure rate we have ERP. Some people recognize their implementation as a failure. But even among the successful ones, okay, uh, if you look at their MRP maturity, they are going to say, you know what, my ERP is working. Everything is working. But when you look at their planning maturity, they sometimes don't even do MRP. They don't really understand how to do MRP. They don't understand how to do scheduling. So that's the kind of, you know, maturity that I have seen with the businesses. So let's say if you were to sort of provide the context in terms of why the inventory planning matters and what is going to be the scope of the inventory replenishment. Let's say if somebody want to start on this journey, Chris, over to you.
3: Sure. I mean, it's a great topic and replenishment can go deep. And again, we start and I use that crawl, walk, run. So if you're just getting started, there's basics. I mean, you know, the primitive company, they run out of stuff. They order it. The problem with that lead times, customer service. Again, you're generating lots of XUPOs. So there's, that's a reactive replenishment. Fit, and it's terrible because you're going you're gonna to lose a lot of efficiency and time in business. So again, as you get into strategies, um, everybody hears about min-max. What's the yep. easiest replenishment to use? Hey, when I get to this level, buy more, buy more. Because before this level gets to zero, the vendor can ship me more. So there's a real principle there, right? Gets here, order more. So again, you get a little time factor there. Time is a big factor in calculating and planning these things. And so the devil's in the details. And so if you think about min-max as a standard replenishment, there's a lot of companies that can manage a large portion of their inventory, non-manufactured items, for example, or maybe with a min-max. They're finished goods, they buy them, they resell them, right? And the other thing you rationalize there is if you look at What's the revenue? What's the dollar of capital to put in a warehouse if everything's at the max? Okay, somebody needs to know, how much money is that? That's 50 million. Okay, lower my maxes or whatever. And then you end up buying more frequently instead of stocking and having longer lead time. So again, there's a lot of math. There's a lot of graphs and charts here as you look at one item. And actually... You know, the future, the new tools are showing graphical images and using AI to start helping you make these decisions. So the other thing they'll do is surface the top items. Hey, you need to go fix these because they're way off. And as you tune, right, you lose all your exceptions. So that's the future state, but getting there. So min-max, pretty simple, PO generators, they can generate POs based on min-max. So if you step forward into when you need MRP and you think about manufacturers, so what MRP does is it's much more invasive, and that's why it's more complex. And again, you can segment your inventory and manage pieces and grow and do more and refine, but just understand it's, you can't get to 100% instant. It does take time. But in the, in the MRP world, if you think about replenishment and just strategies, and I'll be specific, if I'm manufacturing a finished good, maybe it's per customer order. I make it to order. Okay. My replenishment method means you get an order for one, you make one. Great. Now, below that, I've got a sub-assembly. That sub-assembly could have a different replenishment strategy. Maybe that one I build a stock. Why? Because when I get an order for that one finished good, I don't want to have to build everything to make that one product and have, it'll take six months. So maybe that second item down is a build a stock. And so it could have a different replenishment strategy, like a fixed order quantity. When I need to make that, I make 50. I always make 50 or I make increments of 50. That's another concept of a replenishment strategy called fixed order quantity. So again, that first one is like lot for lot. I mean, I need one, I make one, I'm done. Third level down, I got another sub-assembly. Guess what? That one, I only make it if I need it. Again, maybe a different strategy there, lot for lot. It's very quick. That means I need 100, I make 100, I need 103, I make 103. So there's no rational. But So again, different strategies is we look at different inventory items and how do I manage them? So MRP, again, looks at what's on order what's the demand, what's the supply, what's the component. You so now I've got sources of demand from a manufacturing order and a sub-assembly and maybe a sub-sub-assembly. So now MRP is like, well, how deep does it go? Can it get down eight, nine levels? I may have, I may do an engineering bomb for an aircraft and it's 18,000 lines. And you're like, wow, can't humanly manage that. So this is where those tools come in and differentiate companies that are doing well, because people can't manage these processes efficiently. You'll end up with longer lead times, et cetera. So again, MRP, Um, You crawl, walk, run. You can segment your inventory. You can have a whole lot of it managed with this lot for lot or min-max PO generator if you have that tool. But MRP really helps you. And again, it also tells you based on vendors when to create the PO. And again, I can use a a one-year horizon. I can use a two-year horizon. That's the other thing what MRP does. It can get way out because, again, long lead times or maybe it takes me 18 months to make this. And I don't want everything showing up on day one if I don't need it until week. So you hear me describe complexities. And again, we go deeper and deeper into this. So I wrote a few things down. I think that I've talked about a bunch of them. So, uh, you know, warehouse architecture is another one. I'll I'll leave that for some questions. Yeah, so great start. And
2: I really like your approach of crawl, walk and run. And obviously that's how you should be starting. But typically, you know, when I work with my customer and, uh, you know, their approach is always very binary when they, they think of ERP. So either they don't want to do any planning, everything needs to happen in the spreadsheet, or ERP should do everything for themselves. And one of the comments that I typically get, and Nirav is probably gonna get kicked out of it, and this is not the first time uh, I heard this one, so this is going to be, okay, hey, you know what? I don't understand all of these min-maxes safety stock. My planning is very simple, okay? What I really want is, can I get this inventory for three months? Can I put three somewhere, put months somewhere, and can system not order that? Why is it so difficult?
3: Um, so <laughs> I don't know, if and, that's... <laughs> and again, what we do to help educate consumers is, is create illustrations. And you look at okay, if we've got a three month horizon, and you're like, what's three months of supply? Well, you define that. You look at your vendor relationship. Okay, when do I need to order to have that show up? And again, when I cover the three months, the order shows up. So again, there's some math that you articulate where you look at the min maxes, and if that's the strategy, or you said, hey. I'm doing a fixed order quantity, but there's some trigger that times it. Now, the other thing we didn't talk about is interesting a forecast. So, where does my demand come from? So, now I'm going to take a sales forecast. Maybe the forecast is quarterly and I drop in, I need 100 units every three months. And guess what? There's no min max in the system. The item has nothing. There's no sales orders. And guess what? That thing's going to say, bump, time to order 300. Or at least keep me at that level. So, a forecast can drive demand in addition to a sales order and even an MRP. I could be manufacturing, I have sales orders, I can have min-maxes, and I can have a forecast. It's all contributing to calculating, and it is a complex calculation. But for simple, you got to start simple and show the math. People have to understand, well, what's an economic order quantity? When I need that, it's going to look at the vendor, and what's it going to order? Well, he says 100, increments of 100. Maybe that's a pallet, for example. But you start with one example, and you start simply illustrating. And I think that's the best way to describe it, because there is a lot of math in there, and even the computations I've done to rationalize the cost of a min-max or a volumetric expansion of min-max. Well, how much warehouse cube do you have? You can't put all that in there. It doesn't fit, right? If I've got a, I got a guy that makes blown injection molding bottles. We rationalize min-max totally different based on available to store the products. Amazing insights there. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. So, now I'm
2: coming to you. And um, uh, obviously, I want you to provide the priorities that you wanted to talk about, and that's the another layer on top of what chris already described that the formula could be very complex uh, but in general terms when you talk to customers i mean you are going to talk about ai formulas but if for them it's a it's a big transition curve overall in understanding how this planning works and in most cases they just don't get it right uh, you know, because it's very 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 hard to sort of calibrate these things uh, unless you have deep understanding of those things and and really Try to use it as a feedback loop as opposed to uh, simply taking as, you know, very simple formula that I'm going to put some numbers and my planning is going to work automatically. So, Nalab, over to you, uh, you know, in terms of the priority that you wanted to talk about, any other uh, context that you might have. Uh, Nalab, you're on mute if you're talking. Sorry.
0: Do that 10 times a day. Yeah, uh, you know, you hit the nail around the head, right? It all starts at exactly, you know, what you need. A lot of this before getting out to DRV is done by one person or two people. It's tribal knowledge. It's all up here right now, and then now you're supposed to extrapolate that into an MRP and MPSs. It's it, it gets a little difficult because someone in their head is thinking, oh yeah, it's three months that you know we need a supply, but they're doing other calculations in their head that it's almost working like an MRP right? So it's getting that information, getting that data. You know, data is important here. So, If data is good, you're going to get good results. What I see a lot of time is we get the data in, especially during the implementation. We'll get the data in. We have, we have MRP, MPS working, right? Everything is okay. But then three months down the road, four months down the road, next thing you know, MRP starts kind of breaking down. It's like, well, you know, this is not how we expect to plan or our order is late. Well, what happened here? Maybe a vendor opened up close by. He was able to get you that material a little closer. Oh, we forgot to update the lead time. So now we're getting bad, you know, bad MRP data coming out here, right? It's important to understand MRP is as good as the data you put into it, essentially, right? You have to maintain that data. Garbage in, garbage out essentially. So if you maintain that data and don't forget about it, it's not a set and forget it thing. Just because you put an item in a system doesn't mean you can't go, you don't need to go back into the item and update. What's the, what what is my safety stock for this item? Now, what is my lead time for this item? Now, what are my reorder points, my reorder quantities, right? What are these different things? You have this a continuous loop. Like you mentioned, it has to be a process of continuous feedback, right? Because if you set it and forget it, MRP is going to break down very quickly. And all of a sudden those numbers aren't gonna be as accurate anymore. Because MRP, right, think about it, there's so many different there's so many so much happening there from a demand and supply standpoint. But just that demand and supply, break that down a little further. You have demand that's coming from dependent demand and independent demand, right? Yeah. Dependent demand you're coming from sales orders. Yeah, we have lines already booked, we're ready to go ahead and order these things, let's let's pop it through the MRP engine. But what about forecasts as Chris mentioned? Yeah. Right, forecast is looking somehow. Somebody's done a historical analysis on your inventory to say we need to go and stock this item for this quantity for this day, quarter, month, year. Right. So now you're planning either to forecast or to customer orders. Now, what about a layer underneath that? What about replenishing other areas in the warehouse? You might have a Kanban system where if a certain bin goes low, you need to kick off a specific bin, you know, replenishment from another bin itself. And if that bin doesn't have inventory, you need to kick that off into the MRP engine to go ahead and make it, right? So there's all these factors in how you want MRP and MPS to run, essentially, right? The order increments of how you're going to order with vendors, right? The vendors, they'll want you to place an order every single day for a piece of one. They're going to say, hey, we want to order once every two weeks. And it has to be a minimum of 100, right? That's our, that's our minimum quantity. Well, you need a good planning engine to be able to provide that type of feedback and get that, you know, purchase order available for this effort so that, so that vendor is going to do business with you essentially, right? Internal transfers. If MRP is set up correctly, you could set up where you go ahead and create a certain situation where you stock everything in a main warehouse, but now you have off-site warehouses where you also need to stock stock inventory because it's easier for you to go ahead and geographically manage your customers and get inventory to your customers. So now not only do you have to have MRP run to make product in your source warehouse, but also transfer product to your target warehouse, right? MRP will do all this for you if possible. Taking out that human element, taking out that tribal knowledge that a lot of people rely on day-to-day right now, but if implemented properly, MRP is a very powerful tool, right? A lot of customers, you know, initially they might be scared of MRP and MPS, Apex, right, type of philosophy, American Production Inventory Control System. I took, a, you know, a number of passes around that on the supply chain management side, but, you know, it's really not that difficult. You need to really take a step back, understand how your data is. Do your data need a little cleanup? Let's get that data cleaned up. Let's keep that loop continuing. Get that data properly maintained every month, every quarter, every year. So as you run MRP and MPS, you're just going to get the best results out of it. And you're managing exceptions at that point. You're not managing the static data. You're managing the dynamic data through MRP and MPS, right? The system is telling you, hey, a, a demand due date has changed over here, so go ahead and update the supply due date, right? Try to be just in time. Try to be lean. You're not carrying too much inventory. Maybe that's the goal. Well, you know, MRP will help you get there, right? It's supposed to adjust to moving due dates, shifts in demand, quantities, right? Uh, when you should reschedule, when you should not reschedule. It's supposed to do all these things for you so you could concentrate on the business and make better decisions on which vendors to source from, better quality for your customers, and deliver on time.
2: Okay, so a lot of layers there. Obviously, I can head it on a, a lot of different things, but the follow-up question that I'm going to have for you is going to be related to bins. So, I some ERP systems have bins, some don't. Uh, you know, some sort of pretend to have bins. Yeah, you know, uh, they are probably not going to have as much functionality. So, let's say if you were to talk about bin level strategies, and you sort of referred the Kanban term there, right? Some companies might be using that. So what is going to be the difference? So typically, if you look at the distributions, and I don't know, some distribution systems have been, some don't. So when you look at the warehouse location, and then you are going to have bin as well. So obviously, warehouse location level, you are probably going to have this uh, replenishment strategy. Are you also going to have at the bin level? Do you have to have that? So maybe uh, you want to touch on, you know, what are the best best practices? Because you can go overboard with this. Sometimes you have seen processes yeah. that are just overly complex. That they are not able to
0: manage. Totally, absolutely right. And uh, you don't want to overcomplicate it. We're going to slow the the the, the warehouse workers down, or you're going to slow the warehouse down, right? You have to look at what is the benefit of the transaction. You have cost benefit analysis of the whole ERP system, right? Does the benefit outweigh the cost of doing these additional transactions, right? Now, if you have a big big enough warehouse, and now you have specific people managing specific areas of a warehouse right and you know you're able to only pick from certain areas you're stocking certain areas right you're shipping from certain areas but the warehouse is big enough where you know what we call that is being able to replenish from source and target bins essentially right because those areas that maybe the material handler for the shipping department is picking from those are only picking bins and we want to make sure that they're always replenished because we have a high volume moving parts so we want to make sure those are replenished. so we set up like a what we call like a min-max for bins, essentially. Maybe there's also priorities for bins, right? Uh, which bins you pick from first from other bins or which bins you get replenished from from other bins. You set this whole kind of uh, uh, permutation up from all the bins that you have, right, that are dependent on picking bins to stocking bins. So you want to set up the best, most efficient flow so where you're picking from, right, has inventory. And if inventory is not available, you're going to go to the next available bin that they could pick from, replenish, essentially, and replenish that picking bin so inventory could be shipped to the customer. You don't want those picking bins to go low on inventory, slow down shipping, slow down invoicing at the end of the day. So yeah, that's a whole strategy on its own outside of MRP, but that feeds into MRP, right? If set up properly, you want that independent demand to kind of work uh, continuously to, pur- to pump out product, to purchase product, so those source source bins that you're going to get from are always going to be available. Okay, amazing. Thank
2: you so much, uh, Nirav, for that. So, Abu, I'm actually coming to you um, and uh, I don't know if you want to pick the topic related to warehouse architecture that Chris wanted to uh, touch, um, so I don't know if you want to take on that, and maybe you layer in your uh, you know experience with bins, uh, how you would like to layer in bins uh, as part of the replenishment
5: strategy. I'll uh, leave uh, to Chris to talk <laughs> about architecture. But I think one... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> one thing you know i just it's funny i just got a text from one of my clients you know uh, what's the best replenishment strategy that this organization like it's just like (laughs) that sounds weird just as we are doing this so i mean there's just so many layers uh, in mrp right the the hardest part is create like having the data to run a proper mrp right most ERP systems have mrp but the real challenge is having the data right so If you have 4,000 stocking units in your organization, for example, you know, trying to figure out min-max for each level, which supplier to order, what's the minimum order quantity for each supplier, what's the picking time, what's the manufacturing time, what's the lead time. It's a lot of data and you can put in a lot of effort and there's so many variables around it that becomes a big exercise to, you know, if you're not doing it MRP right now, just to get to the point of doing MRP and then just keeping on maintaining that data. The other point is, you know, whatever you're doing in MRP is based on historical data, right? It's not it's not live data. So for example, you put in six months project, you gather all kind of combinations, permutations, you have MRP data and you're in a food and beverage industry, for example. Guess what? There's a drought happened and there's a grain shortage now. And all the supply chain, all the lead time factors, all the pricing, they're all out of the window, right? I mean, even the last four or five years, Suddenly, COVID hit, right? So what happened to all the MRP data? Out of the window, right? It, it doesn't matter anymore. Whatever work you're doing, in it COVID ends. Now you have shortages on port, You have labor shortages. You have you know, container shortages. All of that. Now suddenly, what happened to all those lead All those, you know, data. You know, it's out of the window. So being able to maintain that data, and that's where a lot of times these MRP, the shortcoming around these tools, and you know, people get frustrated around it is maintaining that data accurately all the time is, is a full-time job depending on the number of queues for a number of resources right and that's where I feel a lot of companies miss out you know when they start thinking about uh, running these MRP process. and when they you know when they start looking at it it's like either it squares them off or You know, they go half-heartedly and it doesn't work, and then they get frustrated afterwards.
2: Could not agree more, uh, Abu. In fact, I mean, I'm probably going to have a follow-up story there, uh, you know, on your story. Um, So this is the story related to a customer. They called us, you know, they had a problem. Uh, With the MRP planning, obviously, because of all this COVID situation, uh, they were really struggling. They had to do a lot of manipulation uh, in the spreadsheet. And then we go there and supply chain people are saying, you know what, we want this to be fixed. And we are looking at the system. Okay, what the hell is happening uh, with respect to planning? So then we look at all of their data sets. And, you know, we look at their bombs, bombs were all over the place. Uh, You know, they were supposed to be more of the make-to-stock business from the business model perspective, the way they should have configured it. Uh, But since the ERP system was really off, I mean, it didn't really do very good. Sort of the the transfer, the the point that um, Nirav was talking about, especially when you are talking about, warehouse architecture for the distribution business it's very different right you uh, manufacture or assemble in one and then you are probably going to be shipping to uh, not shipping transferring to the other one um, so in this particular case the erp system was very limiting so obviously they had to take a lot of different shortcuts their bombs were like you know they were designed as more of the make-to-order and they were thinking that the problem is really in their entity okay so in the entities i think they had something like nine month lead time for some reason and they were yeah. thinking their products were coming like you know in a year. So there were a lot of different complexity, but the underlying conclusion of the story was that the data was it was just completely off. It just yeah. did not connect from the business perspective. So I don't know if you are going to have any sort of follow-up comments there. Yeah, I mean that's that's the
5: core reason why MRP's project projects either successful or fail, right? It's the core underlying data. You know, we find either case either company going not spend enough time to gather yeah. it or they spend too much time together and it becomes like a one-year project right so in now you know whenever we go in you know it's what we advise is take up your critical items first right it's uh it's that approach course that matters right is it you know what what items have the most business impact so that can be dollar value that can be from a customer experience perspective and then you know start building that mrp engine uh, down to you know to your last item and you know there are also ABC classification strategies on the distribution side of business where you know you can classify your products by demand, by by dollar value, by impact, and so on. And you know it's building that you know it's it's more of a live thing, right? It's a it's a running thing. It's it's not you know you're going to set it up and then forget about it, right? It's you know while the time you're setting it up, it may also change, right? So so it should be chunk based. In business impact, focus based, and then you build your MRP uh, supply chain. Uh, okay, amazing.
2: Thank you so much, Abu, for that. So, Mark, I'm coming to you. And uh, obviously, you are going to um, say that, you know, what whatever you guys are talking about, that's 19. Because in 2022, you should be thinking about MRP 10.0, I guess. <laughs> and then you, it gets really technical when you look at different um, algorithm of MRP and how much they have evolved over the period of time. So, Mark, over to you in terms of whatever context that you might be able to provide.
4: Yeah, I think it might even go back to the 60s and 70s, Sam. Yeah, so um, <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> what we're talking look, look, um, you know, uh, compared to how things were done in the 50s and 40s and before then, I mean, M- MRP was definitely an impact. So, yeah. um, we, especially with the the ability to traverse multi-levels of a bill of material and, and come up with some idea anyways of when you might need those sub-assemblies or, or down to the lowest level of so, it. So by all means it was uh it was an improvement, perhaps a dramatic improvement to the way you know things were being done manually. And for a lot of companies today who are doing things manually, it it is an improvement. On the other hand, um folks who have experience with MRP and the folks who um have used MRP a lot um experience um a lot of the the side effects and the and the um the the headaches you get with with MRP. Um one of the most um uh, that, that we see most often is uh, the, the bullwhip effect, right, is, is having having too much of certain items. Right. Um, uh, and, and just too little having having stock outs of a number of items either. It's it, it, the, M- the MRP functionality tends to um, encourage kind of a feast or famine type of thing and this is this is true through even in the four walls of an organization and certainly when you bring in the in the supply chain and we we you heard some of the evidence of this in in this conversation right you have a you have a need for three parts right but but no we have a policy here where where we don't want to order just three for for cost purposes and that's where we're planning and costing can often butt heads but for for costing purposes, we don't want to order less than twenty of those, right? And but then when we get to the supplier, the supplier is insisting that that we only order in lots of fifty or this sort of thing. And that that's just a simple example of how you know a little butterfly flapping its wings <laughs> turns into this tsunami of inventory that that ends up in your plant or 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 not, right? So. Um, when you get down to the tactics of it, where where Abu is going right right at the end, he's he's right. You you want something that's dynamic. And this is one of the um, you want to you want to be on top of this information almost constantly. And this is one of the other problems folks have with MRP is is that a lot of the parameters that you've set are quite static in nature. Um, lead time, for example, okay, just take take the example. Of traversing that bill of material, right? To in order to try to figure out or calculate when you're going to need uh, a certain item, subassembly or raw material, you know, six levels deep, right? Well, what are you doing? You're you're looking to the item master at each level to look for a static number, a static lead time to say how long is it gonna take me to get this subassembly, right? It has no idea of how many you're producing. It has no intelligence about the fact that if I produce two of these, it's only going to take me three hours. But if I produce 200, it's going to take me three weeks, right? It, it has no, It's just one static lead time value in your database for that part. So So this is another area that skews MRP's results tremendously. So a, a few years ago, um, a, a couple people took a really hard look at this, a Carol Patak who was um, an APEX uh, national president for a number of years in the 2000s, together with a fellow named Chad Smith, who was a TOC, lean-type expert. Um, And they came up with an entirely different approach um, that kind of is the antithesis, kind of an opposite view of traditional MRP. And they call it demand-driven MRP. Um, And what demand-driven MRP is, instead instead of trying to guess the timing and that's one of the things with MRP, you're, you're always trying to guess the timing. And if things change, you've got to rerun that program and then the timing is different again. And so you're constantly doing pull ins and push outs of of work order dates or purchase order dates and this sort of. thing. OK, so instead of looking at the timing of it, um, what they decided, what, what they the model they put together is to look primarily in the past. For usage, for for historical usage, and based upon the historical usage and certain variability factors, and this is this is key today too, because we can talk about MRP and it's the the static parameters and the and the fact that that MRP is driving you towards zero inventory, right? That is the MRP ideal, is free, uh, aside from safety stock. The ideal in in MRP is that your supply matches your demand perfectly and you end up with zero inventory. Well, you don't want zero inventory. Right. You want enough inventory for any skew that you have. OK, so so you can introduce the topic of safety stock in that regard. Fine. Um, but there again, it's a static value. It's not changing with the with the changing nature of your demand uh, or supply. So so that's what these folks put together. for For every SKU, you establish what's called a, a a planning buffer. So you're looking at not only what you have on hand, but also what you have coming in. okay, And that coming in, maybe purchase orders could be work orders, right? And then there's a reasonable order quantity on top of that to establish what's called a planning buffer. And the what's neat about this planning buffer is it's like a shock absorber and it literally flexes and changes as your demand changes. So if you get a so it's the 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 nature of the values there's a number of values that that support the the size of these buffers, right? And and you can look into the look into the ERP. Anybody's ERP has these values, their usage values, some of its variability values, and so these buffers are established. And then as time goes on and demand changes up or down, these buffers flex accordingly. So if a uh, uh, so if usage goes up, for example, then the buffer is going to get bigger. If usage goes down, the buffer is going to get smaller. And these buffers also trigger Replenishment order. So it's it's really simple. The, the entire buffer is looking into the future for you. Okay, so it's looking in the past for historical usage, but it's also looking into the future in terms of what you have coming in, um, and and possibly forecasts too. You you can incorporate forecasts in this model as well, and in some cases you have to, like for a, a new product. Um, but we've been um, there's there's a, a number of case studies. So. You can go to the Demand Driven Institute. They're kind of a, you know, a, a generic site where you can learn about these concepts, lots of videos, lots of case studies. Um, and it, it's it's really fascinating some of the results that, um, that folks are getting with this approach to replenishment.
2: So awesome details there. Love it. Obviously, for the customers who don't even understand MRP and I included, I guess, you know, it's probably going to take one more life uh, to understand the MRP completely and now you have introduced some more variables there so I don't know when I will be able to understand those but the point I mean uh, there are some very 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 interesting layers and I want to touch on one thing which is the assumption that you are going to have historical data that you are sort of using to come up with your planning buffers now the challenge with that is unless this system is sitting outside of the ERP system, okay, then you are probably going to be okay. Maybe it sits in the SNOP system because typically in the SNOP system, these things are going to be easier. Your historical data is going to be easier to maintain. If you had to get your historical data inside ERP system, good luck with that. Unless you are using the same ERP system for 20 years, which nobody uses, you know, you are not going to have historical data. So how right. is the algorithm going to work again, Mark? Let's say if they don't have the historical data or enough
0: historical data.
4: Yeah, so great question. I mean, yeah, yeah, you're you're in a bind there. If you don't if you don't have any historical data, if they haven't been on an ERP ever at all, then yeah, you're kind of you're starting out a little bit blind with this method for sure. Um, I think typically the you know the the average span of usage you want to look at. Probably minimally three months, and in some cases, it kind of depends upon the the lead time for the part, right, and the and the demand for the part. How far back you want to go to look at the usage window? Um, I think nine months is probably as far out as it as you typically want to go. So consider, you know, yeah, once you're on your your ERP and you have you have that usage information for at least nine months, you'd be good to go.
2: Okay, amazing details there. Thank you so much, Mark, for that. Uh, so, Chris, I'm coming to you. Uh, comments over comments any sort sure. of follow-up
3: stories lots so one of the things that everybody's hovering around and you know the static dynamic values in the mrp right well these aren't working anymore business <laughs> intelligence so we haven't set it bi so the analytics on top of what we're doing is imperative and, and then the real cool thing is if you could take the analytics and update the values of your system so look for it because that stuff is showing up but that's a big deal and if you think about fill rates and You know, you talk about warehouse architecture, heat maps. Do I have things in the right place? Well, how does that help? Well, that's velocity, but Rob nailed it. You know, this replenished the fulfillment bins and the two-tier warehouse structures where, you know, and again, what's MRP do? Tells you what to buy, when to release the PO, what to make, when to release the production order, what to transfer from where to where, when to transfer it, what to cancel. So there's a lot of stuff MRP can do for you. And the bin-to-bin transfer is, and again, as you get more elegant, And and this is velocity, right? So not everybody needs this. Not everybody has 100,000 or more. And so the manageability of this, right? And again, you're still segmenting. And a heat map is, what do I need to manage first? Meaning, what are your fast-moving items? So if you're looking at your top 50, right? MRP, start there. That's the most important stuff to manage, the old 80-20 rule. So again, how do you cart, you know, crawl, walk, run? But analytics are going to help you know what are those top items. Focus on those. And again, the refinement process, everybody said it. What are my lead times? Does that impact cost? As you get it, you got to get analytics. You got to say, okay, if I do this, how much more can I save? How much room do I have? How much cash do I have in the bank? What's the economy doing? I've got guys in the HVAC industry that said my inventory went from 12 to 38 million. Okay, now they're trying to bring it down. What's that tell you? They bought everything they could. They they violated all the replenishment rules, and it's a grab. So that takes it off the system's capability, right? So now. Human intervention, right? We're in a precarious supply chain world. So that kind of throws replenishment. You know, somebody said that the other day, just in time, wasn't meant for this time, folks. So JIT doesn't fit anymore. Nobody said that either, but it's very interesting. So the analytics, the bins, all good stuff. What else did I jot down here? Again, the electronic updates. So again, you think about how you get started. Again, I'm a technical guy. I've got a client now and I do SQL updates to their MRP data, because they don't use it today. Actually, they do They make all their POs manually. I had a session with them last week. But they have, you know, very complex bills of materials, probably 50,000 SKUs. Okay, more than you can even, hey, go update all the lead times. Well, what we do is, again, technique, list of vendors, lead time by vendor. Update every item for that vendor with that lead time. There's a quick way to paint lead time across a vendor. And to Mark's point, as you're analyzing, right, average, average performance, you got to look at the performance. Maybe the number you put in there isn't right. OK, that's going to make a big deal because these lead times offsets, right, it's all about what's the capital float that's on balance sheet inventory versus cash. You know, we have conversation about how do we get more cash? Well, you manage inventory better. That's that's a big part of it. So again, I'm not going to under simplify the process, but analytics are imperative. And again, pick pick what you can start with and get that going. I think that's, oh, warehouse architecture. We started talking about that. And as you look at fulfillment, again, you're figuring out how much do I need? How much room do I need? Where's it at? So, again, we talked about logistics. We talked about heat map. But, again, even replenishment. What are the movements? Receiving. Okay, is that part of replenishment? Yeah, okay. So does the truck come in? Does it go to the dock? Where does it go? Do I do a put-away? Yep. Can I fulfill off the dock? So there's a replenishment. Can And, again, now we go back to the sophistication of. And again, I didn't mention, so warehouse management, not just warehouse architecture, but the elegance of the warehouse management. Most systems don't elegantly create transfer orders. I mean... Mark's probably mine does and Dynamics F&O does. BC doesn't. So some do, some don't. But but again, the sophistication of your, your mobility device, right? Because again, you can have the system and tell you to do this, but how much does it automate the work? Does it create the POs? Does it create the production? Does it update automatically this, update automatically that? And again, when you're high volume numbers of SKUs, you can't manage that by people. Again, the sophistication of that mobility app says, hey, I need to go here and get this and move it over here. I got to go in manufacturing, Kanban. I got a picking order to pick to a cart okay that's a replenishment in essence but you get it yeah amazing
2: uh details there uh and the uh, one thing that i want you to touch on is going to be what to cancel uh i guess that's a very interesting layer it is interesting, so how, it? How, how does that work i mean describe the process a little bit there
3: okay customer calls in i ah, cancel my sales order it was a make to order oops okay the ripple effect of a make to order i don't stock that item i don't build that unless i need it you think i want to build this hundred thousand dollar product and put it on the shelf said okay Hopefully I'll sell that thing he wanted. Okay, that's an example of a customer cancels an order. First example to trigger it. I mean, that's the best case that I have is the customer order is canceled. Or something something happens on the sell side where I don't need those. Or it was a mistake. Whoops. And so what happens? I I you know, I had a fat finger in the the sales forecast and I had a hundred thousand instead of ten thousand. <laughs> Sorry, guys. There's a PO out there for hundred grand of these and I don't want it. I had a client, I kid you not, they ordered a half a million total fat finger. Because, again, you go back to, oh, they were looking at historical usage. It was wrong. There was a bad entry in historical usage. And they picked it up and said, oh, my God, we use a lot. Order a half million. They didn't need to have And so there's a perfect example where, and again, the other thing we're talking about is the analytics on watching this stuff has got to be more real time so that you're for exceptions. but two horror stories where I needed to cancel order, like real quick. It's like, oh, you already shipped it. Refuse it at the dock. I mean, there's a lot going on there. We don't take receipt of that shipment. So cancel order.
2: Amazing details there. Thank you so much, Chris, for that. So Narav, I'm coming to you. Uh, comments over comments, any follow-up stories?
0: Yeah, no, I have a, actually a pretty interesting story. And I think I think Mark touched on it a little bit, um, talking about it doesn't forward plan, right? Yeah, that that is one of the issues with traditional MRP and MPS. So what we did for a customer, actually, they were a big make-to-order, uh, customer, they had you know 10 or 15 level of materials. A lot of the lower level components were made to stock, so they're common across a lot of their items. The top level, maybe the first four or five levels, were made to order. So when they knew they had a project, they're getting close to kind of you know uh, that project being approved, but it's not really approved yet, right? Things had MRP once they get into a true demand line, demand which is either a job, project, sales order, right? Component lines that becomes true demand, right? or you got the independent demand like I talked about. But this was none of that yet, right? We had engineers still creating the bill of material for the top level, but they knew what the lower-level assemblies looked like. A lot of those make to stock down. So we then leveraged, uh, uh, we call simulated production order or what-if scenario type of production order, where we brought in the bill of materials, right? The top level all the way down to the bottom level, even though maybe it was like 80% ready to go, but we were concentrating on the lower-level stuff, Right. Mainly maybe maybe one or two of the make to order items. But essentially, we're able to check off which assemblies that we wanted to go ahead and see or prioritize in the planning run to bring bubble up to the surface. We could stay ahead of the project. Right. Um, And get those things on the production floor to start manufacturing, start purchasing, because there was a high likelihood that the project was going to come, you know, into fruition. Right. And get approved versus if we didn't do that, we waited till the project came in we would have already been late based on the due date that, you know, that the sales reps were already trying to hit, right? Uh, that never gets communicated back, right? Remember the due dates is whatever the sales rep thinks that they're going to, we're going to be able to deliver without a lot of internal conversation with the manufacturing team. Exactly. What is our capacity? What are our bottlenecks, right? When actually are we going to be able to go ahead and, and uh, get, get this item completed? So, you know, we were pretty creative there and we were able to identify, you know, without having, Look at the full structure of a bill of material where we pick and choose assemblies from a full bomb and integrate that into the MRP and MPS run and identify those specific sub-assemblies or make-to-stock from a priority level, bring them up and release them directly from MRP to go and get a head start on it. So I thought that was a big, big win for this customer. They're able to kind of control their manufacturing process a little better and have better visibility on those projects coming in, right, uh, on the manufacturing. So I thought, I thought that was good. And I always tell my customers when we're, when we're trying to implement MRP and MPS, um, M- MRP and MPS is more of an art than a science, right? Every company is going to be different. You, you're, the way you interact with your vendors, the type of materials you buy, right? How far you are from your vendors, right? What's the seasonality of your products, right? You know, all these different things can play in creating that perfect MRP engine. And let me tell you, it's never perfect, right? We just get close enough. And we get close enough where we manage the 80-20 rule, as Chris was talking about, right? Where we are able to manage a business with the high likelihood that we're going to be able to complete on time, get our inventory in on time, uh, go through the standard routine of manufacturing and, you know, stocking inventory and outputting inventory and ship to the customer. And that comes down to the warehousing, lead times and all that stuff. But it's more of an art than a science and iterative. You know, you have to have patience. You You have to have the continuous loop feedback to make sure it's humming. Um, and that the proper pro- proper departments have visibility into the MRP thing. That's a big mis- mis- misconception that only the MPS, the master production schedule, only holds on to that schedule. That's not true. That should be visible to everybody, right? That should be visible to the buyer. That should be visible to the sales rep that's putting in the orders, right? They should be able to see, oh, wait, you know what, Mr. Customer, we have this coming through on our planning side. We might think that might be ready on this date because we see it being planned out you know, let's put a tentative date in there. That should also be visible, right, upstream and downstream. It just shouldn't be a silo. That information is very beneficial throughout the organization to properly and maintained. Okay, so some very, very, very interesting details there. So
2: I am going to have one follow-up question for you, and I don't know how many people really understand the difference between, you know, the role of the forecast, the role of MPS, and how that is going to impact your MRP processes, it could be sometimes all over the place because all of them are sort of going to be impacting each other. So let's say if you were to describe the difference between MPS as well as, you know, forecast and what the boundaries are going to be of each of them when you are sort of planning for your supply chain. I'll
0: to you. Yeah, I have a very simple example for that. Think of a seasonal business. Think about a toy manufacturer, right? Toy manufacturers will not have customer POs January, February, March, April, May, June, right? They're going to get their POs at the end of the year. They're going to get their POs that they have to produce to the different toy retailers, right? Amazon, whatever it is. It's going to be October, November, December, right? But they need to put a forecast in because they need to start making the millions of toys, right? Beanie bags was a big one, I think, in one year. But that's the only one that's come to my mind. But they had to start making that upfront. They had to start buying material January, February, manufacture them March, April, May, right? Get the containers ready, wherever they're going to ship it to, so they can start shipping with anticipation of those POs coming in at the end of the year. Now, they don't have the actual POs at the beginning of the year, so they're using a forecast with the high likelihood that they're going to be able to sell the material, right, through historical sales. So they're going to implement a forecast to get the planning engine to run, so they could get the components, right, get the inventory stock. So when the POs come in in October, November, December, they're able to just quickly ship out the door. Right. That is a, a, a real good example of between a forecast and MPS. MPS is going to be telling the system, hey, you got the you got the you got the purchase order now, but we have it in inventory. Let's ship it out versus the forecast for the same example is going to be telling the planner, hey, we don't have a, a PO, but we have a forecast and so we have to make it. Either we're going to make the customer orders or we're going to make the... Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Narav, for that. Abu, I'm coming to you. Comments over
2: comments, any stories?
5: Yeah, I mean, you know, we had a client where, you know, they were always at excess inventory and, um, you know, they were, you know, blaming the MRP system. And what we found was they had over-enthusiastic sales uh, uh, demand forecast, right? the sales have always thought they can sell more, you know, they can always beat their quotas, but they never ended up beating it. So, you know, that's a very important factor is, you know, especially when the sales side of the forecast comes in, you know, how can you accurately, you know, predict your sales, right? And that, you know, even if you're off like five, 10%, it can just throw off your entire material requirement planning, right? So, uh, again, forecast, you know, as Nirav was saying, can, you know, vary by the season, you know, you you may have business model where you sell more in Christmas and then less afterwards, and then you have to build all those trend profiles and, and all of that into the system. But I just, one of the comments, you know, um, Chris was mentioning you know, about BI systems and the ability to you know, automate the data entry. So, in my opinion, that's the easier part, right? Because you can build some sort of system to automate some, you know, automatically update some. But the point I was making is just to gather the updated information, right? So, if you have a thousand suppliers and suddenly world market condition has changed, that's going to affect five, you know, 100 uh, suppliers, even just the effort of reaching out to them and figuring out what's the new lead time going to be is, is a huge effort on its own, right? And that's where the MRP system often lack is that dynamic data feedback from the market forces back into, right? And that's where the most complexity of the, you know, MRP system is, whether it's on the demand forecast, you know, summer went longer than usual, right? So I worked for a big company um, in the apparel business and they spent a lot of money forecasting how, you know, how the, you know, how mild the winter is going to be, how strong, it's a Canadian-based company, right? How strong the winter is going to be. And based on those forecasts, then they order the inventory, the number of jackets, when is the winter going to start, right? But guess what? You know, the forecast change, you know, instead of, you know, we had a very mild October here, no one was even looking for, you know, winter jackets. So it suddenly just changes everything, right? And it's that market forces, you know, now the vendor can say you know either you take up the order or you don't and you know it's getting that market data into your mrp system which i find is the most challenging aspect of development good mrp and where a lot of companies uh, fail right uh, bi systems again they're mostly focused on historical data right They're reports built up on your erp system on your databases but the bi systems very few I mean, even if it's out there, just getting runtime market intelligence, right? They're not connected to intelligence databases or things like that, right? So it's a process, you know, it's a complicated process. It requires, uh, you know, a lot of manpower to maintain it uh, and, you know, to run it efficiently.
2: Yeah, so some amazing details there. And I like the bit about correlating your market data, obviously, with your uh, your internal data. But the challenge that you are going to get, obviously, with ERP system, as we know, as I commented about the tightness of the ERP data model, uh, any data that you are going to store inside the ERP system is always going to be harder. The ERP data itself is very, very, very hard to manage. Now, if you are trying to bring additional data elements that sort of don't belong to ERP, it could be even more problematic in general if you are going to keep that. And that's why and you are absolutely right uh, about the bi system versus some of the other system and that's why we have the snop system they are really designed for that and they typically the output of that is going to come to your erp system and they they manage all of that complexity where they are going to be overlaying a lot of different data sets and they are also be going to be correlating with your data but obviously your data has to be right your integration flows have to be right otherwise your planning is going to be probably all over the place so i don't know if you have any sort of follow-up comment there agree disagree I, I
5: don't know. yeah i mean, so I agree with you i think again you, you're pointing to one is a technical challenge of maintaining the data you know system system type in how to manage integration and the other challenge is getting the market data from your own market right yeah, so yeah. getting actual data from a thousand suppliers right so that's those are two different things right so it's getting that real-time market data is, is a harder challenge in my opinion, yep. rather than figuring out the technical piece uh, to get it into yep. and that's where, you know, people get frustrated with MRP is it's that market date. it's not a feedback from the market into the.
2: Okay, could not agree more. Thank you so much, Abu, for that. Uh, Mark, comments over comments, any stories.
4: Yeah, um I wanna talk about a uh a, a subtle point. Um Chris actually talked about in his opening comments and he was describing, you know, kind of down into a level of bill of materials and you know the idea of, hey, I've got this subassembly. Um, you know, it takes me it's going to take me four weeks to build it, or, or do I want to decide to put that in stock so I can save that four weeks of lead time, right and, and be able to get my end product out, however many levels up that is, out out to my to my client, uh, my customer much sooner. So that, um, that's a whole topic within demand driven MRP and, and they call it strategically, positioning inventory um, and strategically positioning not in the sense of, hey, I'm going to have a warehouse in Milwaukee and one in L.A., right? It's more it's more positioning it in in terms of the structure of the bill of material. Right. So you you do some analysis with your with your bill of material and see. You know, how many how many days of lead time it takes across through through and down each level. Right. And then you can can kind of see and and get an uh, an idea of where where you have the opportunities. Hey, if I stocked this part, how much would the would the entire lead time shrink? Right. In order to offer. So. Um, we, we recently um, engaged with uh, a couple um, DDMRP experts uh, that brought a, brought a client um, to us and uh, working, working together in a situation where they have, uh, they, they have an end product that their, their full bill of material structure and their full manufacturing process is about a 12 to 14 week lead time today. And because they understand the demand-driven principles and concepts, they are they are so confident they're going to be able to have enough of certain sub-assemblies in stock. They're going to be able to reduce this entire lead time down to a guarantee of less than two weeks to have that product, okay? Now, obviously, the balance here is right you, i mean if you have a gazillion dollars and and as much space as you need you can you can go ahead and um and stock as much as you want right so so the the challenge is of course, yes, having enough of those sub assemblies at all times because it'll it'll cost you dearly if you have a stock out because that lead time's gonna come right back at you, but at the same time. Not too much, right? So you're you're controlling how much, so you're making sure you don't have excess as well, and that's one of the big the big principles and the balance points of uh, of this demand driven MRP approach I've been speaking of is having enough of any SKUs that you need, so almost 99% sure that you're going to have that, but yet at the same time not having excessive and not having too much, so you're not tying up all that cash. Um, in uh, in what could be very expensive assembly.
2: So there are some very interesting details. And I guess, you know, one of the details that you just mentioned, there are subtle nuance there. And uh, that can answer a lot of questions and solve a lot of problems that we have been talking about. So are you saying that, let's say, if I have my data off and I may be doing make-to-order for one of the assembly right now, but let's say if I want to know whether they, that should be probably stored in the inventory, as opposed to making when I get the order, can the MRP system tell me that rather than make to order, you should be treating, treating that as more of make to stock? Can the MRP engine make those recommendations as well, Mark?
4: No, no, there's not that I know of um, that. I know of there's not a computer program that's going to that's going to do that for you and give you a definitive analysis. Someone may have it. I don't I don't know of it. But typically, it's it's a more um, it, it's a, it's it's frankly a, a spreadsheet analysis of looking at the structure of the bombs and their overall products to see to see where those opportunities. Okay, amazing! Thank you so much, Mark, for that. So the only thing we can take right now is going to be closing
3: advice. Chris, what would be your closing advice, please? So we're not going to be afraid of this topic. And if we're manually generating POs and production orders today and you have a tool in your system, look at your inventory, find your most important revenue profitable items. You can put settings in there and run master planning and see what it tells you to do. You don't have to do it. Go manually create your stuff, run it again, and see if it you missed anything. But that's a way to climb into this thing and start getting comfortable. And a lot of the old school guys were like, hey, eh. well, when you show them the report, he's like, okay, that's what I would have done. That's how you build adoption and you move this thing forward. Okay, Amazing forward. advice. Thank you so much, uh, Chris, for that. Narav, closing advice, please. Uh, you are on mute, Narav.
0: Eleven time. <laughs> Eleven time today. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. I would say I would say uh, companies that are using MRP and MPS are kind of you know feeling a little down and, and low about that's not working well for them. Look at your data, right? You need that continuous feedback loop. Let's look at you know trying to create some BI around that to update that data. You know what we haven't even talked about is other technologies within the warehouse that could also make your MRP runs even much more efficient RFID tags and inventory, right? That they feed back into MRP and MPS. So it, there's a lot of opportunity there. Don't shy away from it. Right. Um, you know, to, o- open, open the door there and you're going to see a lot more visibility into your business that you thought you knew.
2: Okay. Amazing advice. Thank you so much. For that, Abu, what is going to be your closing advice, please?
5: Uh, yeah, I'm going to echo Chris's comments, right? Start small, look at your, you know, most impactful items. And then, start building your MRP system, you know, from, from that point onwards.
2: Could not agree more. Thank you so much, uh, Abu, for that advice. Mark, closing advice, please.
4: Yeah, if you're uh, experienced with MRP, if you're not happy with the results for whatever reason, take a look at Demand Driven MRP, Demand Driven MRP, uh, I'm sorry, demand com is the generic site that'll um, give you a lot of education, a lot of videos about the concept. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Mark, for that. So that's it today. If you join for the first time, this was part of our digital
2: transformation series for which we meet every Thursday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. So make sure you guys are going to be here next week. We are going to come back with another topic. On that note, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thanks,
4: everybody. Thanks, all. Thanks, Sam.
2: I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings, from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Mark Lilly, head over to LillyWorks.com. It's L-I-L-L-Y-W-O-R-K-S.com. If you want to learn more about Chris Garadini, head over to TurnkeyTech.com. It's turnkyte ccom If you want to learn more about Nirav Shah, head over to XRSerp.com. pcom It's A-D-C-I-R-R-U-S-E-R-P.com. If you want to learn more about Abu Asif, head over to pennymanagement.com. It's pannimanagemen dot com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Nadav Shah, who shares his insights into the process challenges of make-to-order manufacturers. Also the interview with Thomas Kleima, who shares his insights into the automated testing for ELP. Also don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Thank podcast. you for
1: listening to another episode of the WBS podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.